Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Darwin Festival podcast. I'm Chris Smith. With the frenzy of the festival now behind us, each week what we're going to do is to bring you the in-depth conversations that we had during the week with some of the world-class contributors. Last week, rap met Darwin. This week, it's the turn of poetry. My name's Ruth Fidel. Um, I'm best known as a poet, and that's what I centrally am. Um, I'm a resident uh, poet and a visiting fellow of Christ's College Cambridge just at the moment for this year, 2009. And I also happen to be one of the 72 great-great-grandchildren of Charles Darwin. So it's rather appropriate that I'm at Darwin's College during this particular year of Darwin's bicentenary. He had quite a few children, didn't he? He had ten children. Um, three died. One died as a little baby. She was only two or three weeks old, Mary. Then the great loss and tragedy of his life was that his, his daughter, Annie, his eldest daughter, his second child, died in 1851 when she was ten. And a lot of people believe that that is what actually tipped him into into understanding, because he'd seen it in his own family, the survival of the fittest, um, you know, the the bleakness of being alone with our biology. So you decided to eschew science in favour of an art subject and become poet. Yes, I mean a lot, of course, of my family are science, but you know there are there are other people in, in our well, family. A dominant genetic trait. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nature and nurture, that's a difficult one in our family because, so many, of course, you know, if, if everybody around you is a scientist, people get used to being doing science, thinking of it. How has your ancestry then, do you think, influenced your work? Well, the Darwin bit of my ancestry, and there are others, of course, um, that early on, my grandmother, who was, was Nora Barlow, that was my mother's mother, she had a house in the countryside in Buckinghamshire, which was my idea of sort of paradise. And it was not just because there was a lovely big garden and all sorts of things, you know, interesting things in the house. There were books, and a lot of the books were about naturalists or nature or animals. And so I just grew up thinking that it was the normal thing. The naturalist as hero was a normal thing. Later on, I, I, mean, I was very fond of her, and she lived in... Um, Selinger in a house which is now owned by Robinson College in, off Grange Road. And I remember looking after she was in her late 90s and I was a graduate student at Oxford doing my PhD on the imagery of emotion and Greek tragedy. And she said, Ruth, what are you working on? And I told her. But she'd lost her short-term memory. So she asked this over and over again. And I told her over and over again while I was making her supper. And... Um, what was wonderful, it was like talking to a very, a rather drunk but very intelligent ghost. She would always come back to me with a different story about Darwin. And she said, she told me then, that was the first I knew of it, Darwin's wonderful book the, on the expression of emotion in man and animals, which is now the subject of a really wonderful exhibition, a new exhibition in the Natural History Museum in London. Um, and she also told me that Charles found it very difficult but increasingly as he went on, he realised that his his ideas and his experiments and his theories were causing him to disbelieve in a benevolent divinity. And his wife, Emma, Emma Wedgwood, his first cousin, was very, very um, devout. She'd lost her own sister, Fanny, seven years before she married him. And she wrote then, you know, belief in the afterlife you know, is the only thing that sustains me. So... Um, my grandmother told me this, and I thought then, I mean, I was just a classic student, that I thought then, I'd like to write something about that. 
And then last year this opportunity came up. So I wrote a book of poems, which is actually the biography of, of, of Darwin's life. But it's very much the biography in the, at the heart of it is the relationship with Emma and how these two very intelligent and very honest people negotiated this roaring gulf between them, especially when little Annie died. Because when Annie died, Emma had to discipline herself to accept the suffering that God had laid upon her, this suffering. And she told the little sister, yes, we will see Annie again in heaven. And what did Charles Darwin say? I mean, he didn't. But he just believed that um, he was realising that his own theories meant that having him having married his first cousin might mean that inherited tendencies to disease is passed on, so possibly he was responsible for Annie's death. So, and I mean, he would say, you know, nature is prodigal of the forms of life, you know, the weak go to the wall. So he didn't, they didn't confront each other about that. They dealt with it each in their own way. But your poems, how did you actually decide what the content was going to be and what did you base the content on? What sources did you use? Well, it's all, most of it is on the net, and there's a wonderful resource, which is the Correspondence Project of Charles Darwin and um, John by Jim Seacore, and that's really such a good website. There's all, also all of Darwin online, of course. Um, and I had books. I mean, my, my grandmother had, was the first to, to actually um, edit the Journal of the Voyage of the Beagle and his autobiography. So I had all those. Um, and I started out because I was commissioned by the Natural History Museum to write 15 poems about for this exhibition on the expression of emotions in man and animals. And I didn't know where to start. And then I thought about the fact that his mother died, Charles's mother died, when he was eight. And he repressed all memory of her. He says in the autobiography, um, you know, I, I can remember nothing of her except her black dress and her work table, which is curiously constructed, and nothing else except my father crying. And I thought, ah, from repression to expression, there's an arc there. And then I talked about it with my, um, with, with my publisher, at Chateau and Windows. She said, well, OK, you better do the whole thing, but you've got to do it by next year. I've got to bring it out on 12th of February. So then I was just plunged into him, and I didn't have time to think. I, you know, each of the poems is, is complete in itself. It's a lyric poem, but they're all different in form. But so... I just followed my instinct about what was important, what I felt was important in his life and his thought and his relationships. I was going to ask you about the style. So are they all a consistent style so you can just jump from one to the next and you'll feel as though you're in part of the same big family? Or have you given each of the movements, for want of a better word, uh, their own unique flavour to represent that aspect of Charles Darwin's life? Um, yes, except for the last bit, in order to represent... Uh, you know, the, each one is a little snapshot of some moment that happened. And as with writing any poem, after a while when you're writing it, the poem decides its best form. And they're lyric poems, um, and they are in different forms, but I think you will feel that they're all the same sort of thing. They're my voice, but using his and particularly Emma's voice as well. Because once... That was, one for me, one of the great joys of writing it. Um, when I met Emma and her diaries and her letters and the, the depth and honesty of her um, and also the pain of... Um, real, she said, you know, I didn't, she didn't want him to give up his theories for fear of giving her pain. 
but he knew it did. So that was a great um, joy and, and um, humbling and exciting to, to, to find all that. I also had to have Alfred Russell Wallace in there because, of course, he was a co-discoverer of natural selection as the, as the means mechanism of evolution with Charles. And what was one of the interesting things is that you know Charles was looking at orangutans early on, 1838, and of course they'd just arrived in, in the zoo. Nobody had seen great apes before, and they, ridiculously they dressed them in dresses and things. And yet they didn't make the connection with human beings. And he was looking at them in the summer of 1838 and thinking, the facial muscle in relation to their feelings, there must be some link there with our facial muscle, and you know, there must be link. That doesn't come out until 1872 when he writes the Expression of Emotions book. Um, but then Alfred Russell Wallace went to Borneo and he was the first person to see great apes in their natural habitat and they were orangutans as well. So it's a really there's an interesting thing there. Of course, he shot them. You know, he shot 13, some of them on their nests. Um, and they just fell there, and the, the little they didn't fall down, and the little ones fell down. The, the Japanese uh, harvest whales for research these days, don't they? But how has um, how has this been received? Well, the arts community have been very um, nice about it. They like it, and in fact, I was really pleased that a biographer, Richard Holmes, whom I really respect, wonderful biographer, he thought it was actually biographers could learn from it because it encapsulates. I try because I have marginalia. Um, so I'm doing the sort of what's happening down the side, sometimes what's happening in his life, sometimes what's happening in his thought. Um, I can make the actual moments um, stand out sort of more clearly and more luminously somehow, at least that's what he was kind enough to say. Well, um, I, you know, the, the science community seems to have been very nice about it too. I did a, a thing with um, Jonathan um, Howard in, in uh, Somerset House and Randall Keynes, and he was a geneticist. And he really liked it. So, you know, the people, if there are scientists who think I've got things wrong, they haven't told me. I, um, no, I think mainly I've seen geneticists and they seem to like it. Can we hear some? Well, I thought I'd read you the passage about actually writing The Origin of Species, because as you know, he had to write it very fast. Afterwards, he called it My Abominable Volume. And he wrote it within 12 months. I've called it A Pigeon Fancier's Manual. This horrid species thing... He's got to write it new and shorter, just, just summarising his views. My rag of a book. It cost me so much labour I almost hate it. They build a billiard room beside the study. He pots coloured balls like sweets as a rest from work. She protects him from visitors and relatives. No one's ill. They take a family holiday on the Isle of Wight. He finishes in April. The publisher's reader says, Make it a manual on pigeon breeding. Forget the rest. Everyone loves pigeons. It'll be reviewed by every journal in the land. John Murray knows a good thing when he sees one. He'll do a small edition, but it's still too long. Edit. Vomit. Edit. Shadows in the dawn. Resist the lure of ever more evidence. He sends it and disappears for a water cure. Severely ill. In November, at 15 shillings, it sells out in one go. Ruth Padell reading from her new book, Darwin, A Life in Poems. A truly magnificent volume, and it's on sale now. Do join us for more from the Darwin Festival's archives next week. 
I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>